couple minutes past the hour, so uh, let's get started. Um, today, Tatiana Haidt is going to introduce our speaker for us. So Tatiana, if you're ready, you can unmute yourself. Ready. Okay. Uh, Dr. Stephen Lindau is a plant pathologist and microbial ecologist who received a PhD in plant pathology from the University of Wisconsin at Madison. He went on to have an over 40 year career in the professoriate at the University of California, Berkeley, where he had a number of honors and awards, including a Procter and Gamble Award, Distinguished Teaching Award, and an Award of Distinction from the Final Pathological Society, among others. Dr. Lindau has studied bacteria that live on plant surfaces with emphasis on the study of ice nucleation active bacteria. He's also investigated bacteria that induce fruit rust by production of the plant hormone 3-endoacetic acid, as well as plant pathogenic bacteria that colonize plants prior to infection, among other studies. Further, Dr. Lindau engineered sophisticated biosensors to assess the behavior of epiphytic bacteria under natural conditions that have contributed substantially to our understanding of bacterial ecology. Dr. Lindau's work has culminated into 172 peer-reviewed papers, 72 books, book chapters, and reviews, and 45 technical reports, symposium papers, and patents. In his work as a prominent scientist, Dr. Lindau has truly made remarkable contributions to the field of plant pathology. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Stephen Lindau. Thank you very much. Can you see my screen okay? Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks again for the invitation to speak today. I think most of you haven't really thought too much about uh, microbiology of leaves, but I'm going to try to show you how it's really central to both some of the history of plant biotechnology, but also really kind of emblematic of some of the major ways that humans are kind of messing with the world. So we'll kind of get into both of those topics here uh, real quickly. So again, we're going to talk today about uh, Leaf surface microbiology, and we'll talk about epiphytes. And epiphytic bacteria are those that live on the plant surface. This is an image of a typical leaf surface that's been well colonized by the end of the summer. This tunnel-like object is a stomata where gas exchange for the plant occurs, and the little blobs all over the surface are bacterial cells. So there's about a million or more of these on any one little spot on a leaf. Yeah, of all the leaves in the world, there's lots of them, but Avogadro's number of bacteria in the world. <clears throat> but they're really quite important, even though we don't normally think too much about them. Much of our understanding of these bacteria is because they include plant pathogens. Most of the bacteria on leaves are not pathogenic, but those that are build up populations on the leaf that can eventually cause disease. And uh, the probability of disease in a plant is a function of how many of these bacteria that develop basically on a healthy plant, but then eventually invade and cause disease like the brown spot on the top or fire blight on the bottom. But it's been very central to kind of IPM programs where we can control disease by applying pesticides and all to control these bacteria basically only when they're needed. But the... Uh, the major role of these bacteria on plants is actually to try to prevent against disease. Not all bacteria on leaves are pathogens. Uh, most are not pathogens. And they actually compete against and confer resistance to pathogens. And you give an example on flowers. Flowers 
like most leaves and others, they, they emerge into the world sterile. And if an insect were to bring a pathogen cell shown by the red onto a sterile flower part, they grow to huge numbers very quickly and they can eventually cause an infection and cause disease, as you see in the bottom right, fire blight disease of pears and apples. But we can change that succession by having non-pathogenic bacteria be some of the first organisms to be present, in this case, by spraying them on the flowers as they are emerging. And those bacteria then colonize that flower well, because there are a lot of those bacteria present, the pathogen itself can't grow. This has been the, the, the basis for what we call biological control of plant diseases by changing the normal succession patterns of, of pathogens. But to mostly what I'm going to talk today about is isonucleation. Uh, certain bacteria uh, that live on plants catalyze ice formation. Now we were all taught incorrectly that water freezes at zero degrees Celsius or 32 degrees Fahrenheit. But like many things we've learned, it's wrong. Uh, water will supercool, remain liquid to quite cold temperatures unless there's a catalyst for ice uh, formation. And these bacteria are nature's most efficient ice catalyst. And Pseudomonas syringae is the most common and most active ice nucleating bacteria. And in the presence of Pseudomonas syringae, the, back, the water will only supercool, will only cool to around minus one or minus two degrees Celsius before it freezes down to around 30 degrees Fahrenheit. Because plants are mostly water, it's the presence of these bacteria on the plants that is responsible for their freezing. The plants can tolerate the formation of ice. The ice basically tears the plant apart and we get this blackening that we associate with frost damage. So it's these bacteria on plants that actually dictate the temperature at which plants freeze. You look in the upper right, this is the freezing temperature, if you would, of plants. If they did not have these bacteria on them, and we grow them in the greenhouse without the bacteria, they can easily supercool down to around minus six degrees Fahrenheit, around 22 degrees Fahrenheit before they will start to freeze. But again, if there's bacteria on them that can catalyze ice, they will freeze at a very warm temperature, around 28, 29 degrees Fahrenheit. And it's the numbers of these bacteria that are on the plants that are the dictating the temperature at which the plants freeze. If there's high numbers of bacteria, like a million on so on a leaf, they're hopeless. They're gonna freeze by the, temp the temperature gets to minus two. But if we drop the numbers of these bacteria down from a million to 100,000 to 1,000, you'll see the temperature to which these plants can now cool before they freeze and are damaged, uh, drops dramatically. So a lot of what we've been interested in is how can we manipulate the communities of microbes on leaves to, in this case, avoid pathogens or ice nucleating bacteria to avoid disease or frost damage. Now, ice nucleation is a really interesting phenomenon. It's very important to plants, and we'll show you later into other processes. But it's, uh, it's encoded by a single gene. A single gene encodes a large protein. The gene itself is very odd. It's, it's a tandemly repeated sequence. The gene is about 4,000 base pairs long, and it has some 20 to 30 of these repeated sequences that encode a 48 amino acid uh, protein block, if you would, that's repeated over and over and over as well. And the computer would tell us that that folds into a structure that looks very much like this, where the hydrogen bonding serine and threonine molecules that can bind to water 
are shown in the orange, the yellow, and the purple. And this is a facet of an ice crystal, and here's the surface of the protein with the hydrogen bonding atoms. And you can, you can kind of mentally lay that one on top of the other, showing that these proteins that are formed on the bacteria that are on the outermost part of the bacterial cell basically bind water and hold it into a little ice embryo, it's called, and that will allow the spontaneous growth of the rest of the water into a crystal. So it's very important to the plants that we've talked about, but it's got other important applications. Uh, artificial snow, virtually all artificial snow is made using this bacterium, a freeze-dried gamma-irradiated strain of Pseudomonas syringae, the one we found years ago, is added to the water that's blown up into the air so that the crystals of ice form in the air rather than it falling as freezing rain. And it's also involved in a lot of other applications and freezing of fish and ice cream and so on. There's a lot of interest in using these proteins to uh, um, uh, cause ice formation in situations where ice wouldn't otherwise form. Now, the same process that we talked about, this exclusion of pathogens by uh, non-pathogenic bacteria can also be seen with ice nucleation bacteria. These plants were all put in a freezer at minus 10 degrees, 24 degrees Fahrenheit. And in the uh, absence of ice nucleating bacteria, the plants super cool and are quite happy. Ice nucleating bacteria put on them, they all freeze and are killed. But the plants in the middle, they were first inoculated with a non-ice nucleation active bacteria, and then later with an ice nucleating strain. And because they were already colonized by the non-ice forming bacterium, ice couldn't form and the plants then weren't damaged. So this is basically a, a biological control of frost, if you would. And it, it seemed to be one that could be quite important if we could better understand how it works. And just like the flowers that I mentioned before, the, the leaves of, of plants coming from buds or seedlings coming out of the ground are not always colonized by various bacteria and certainly ice nucleating bacteria shown in the red. When they first emerge into the world, there's very few of any ice nucleating bacteria. And within a week or two, the numbers increase dramatically by you know, thousands of fold more. So with this in mind, we, we set about early on, soon after we had uh, cloned the ice nucleation gene with some of my colleagues, we could make specific mutations in that ice nucleation gene using the recombination with the modified ice nucleation gene that we had made in the laboratory. We would then make what we call ice minus antagonists. These would be strains of Pseudomonas syringae, which has been specifically deleted for the ice nucleation gene. We were interested then to see whether those bacteria, the ice minus mutants, would be very competitive against their isogenic parental strains. Strains be very, very similar ecologically and differing only in the presence of the ice nucleation gene. Whether such bacteria would be better competitors against each other than some other randomly occurring bacterium that does not nucleate ice. And again, the idea would be to put them on the plants and ask whether they were good at competing against the ice nucleating bacteria that might immigrate to those same plants. So this was a recombinant organism as defined at that time. This was in the early 1980s. Together with my colleague, Nick Panopoulos, we had uh, been the first to uh, make such organisms that we wanted to then use outside of the laboratory. 
The idea was to test this model in the field where we could take the non-ice forming bacterium and put that on plants and ask what other types of ice nucleating bacteria could also invade those same plants. Well, this was the first uh, uh, use of a mic micro modified organism outside the lab. And as such, you can imagine it got a lot of attention, a lot of it unsettling, got a lot of headlines of setting the GD free and altered life forms that were going to rain on Tule Lake potatoes. Tule Lake refers to the small town just south of the Oregon-California border, where the University of California has a research station where we did the studies. It was going to be the Alamogordo of 1984, and there were just hundreds and hundreds of um, headlines of this sort. This got huge attention all around the world. I can't imagine there were there were a hundred or more television and radio and interviews that I had to do, all about our proposal to do this study in uh, Northern California. Well, as the first authorized release of this organism to the field, it got a lots of press attention, but B, the attention of a lot of critics that were very concerned about the precedence of this type of thing. And so there were suits against both the University of California, but also against the federal government agencies that had approved our uh, permits to do this study in the field, including the NIH. And these court uh, <clears throat> cases and other regulatory changes that all happened out, it, it's been over five years or more that delayed us for going to the field, again, because of the, the precedent setting nature of this. Again, our my poor student here was overwhelmed by TV crews coming in all the time to keep an eye on what we were doing. And then again, it kind of pointed a finger at how the public really could benefit from more education of science and that uh, there was a really not much appreciation of what we were doing. And unfortunately, very much like today, there were a lot of people who were not very trusting of the governmental agencies themselves that had reviewed our proposal and had uh, considered its safety. Now, after all of the court cases were, were resolved and, and you name it, we were pretty much ready to go to the field eventually the next spring. But at that point, the critics uh, had one last stand to try to block this kind of an experiment. And they, they were going to try to organize a boycott of the commodities in that area. Potatoes being one of the major commodities grown in that area. And if you might notice, when you go to the grocery store, most potatoes that come in bags anyway have the producer's name right on it and the location. So it was very, it was very uh, clear that it could be a quite a successful boycott against Tule Lake potatoes. The Tule Lake potato growers who we were trying to help with our research were very concerned about this. They said, okay, University of California, you're willing to send us a check for any losses we're going to have because of the boycott from your experiment, go for it. UC said, well, not so fast. They had, they had commissioned a review of the um, potential economic impact on the area. It was about 50 million bucks. And they were concerned about writing a $50 million check to the growers. But eventually, after more education and so on, uh, they did say, this is the right thing to do, let's do the experiment. But before we could do the experiment and the plants were just coming up for our initial applications, eco-terrorists broke into the plot area and uh, uprooted the plants. So we had to replant them and it, it set us back further. Uh, 
But eventually we were able to go ahead with the first authorized release of these recombinant organisms outside. Here's a Northern California scientist is now chast in the background with us with our moon suits as it was called in the press. And also all of this fancy equipment that the EPA brought in, they were commissioned by the uh, federal uh, Congress to do a detailed survey, a study of what was happening at our release site. And the EPA people had their own strict regulations because it was a unregistered pesticide. They had to treat it as though it was very dangerous. And it was these pictures in the newspapers that made everybody convinced that this was something quite scary and that we should all be worried about what was going on in Northern California. But it was a very successful experiment. The, um, the plants uh, were subject to a lot of frost even during the middle of the summer. It's a high desert area where it gets cold at night. Here you see three potato plants, two of which are frozen and one which escaped freezing. And again, our, our ice minus mutants, as it was called, uh, controlled frost quite dramatically compared to untreated plants. They had much less frost damage. And a naturally occurring non-nucleating bacterium that we had included as a control had similar levels of, of control as our ice minus mutants. Ice minus mutants were better, but not so much. So the decision was really made by the, the corporate entity that eventually licensed this technology was to go with the naturally occurring strain because of the huge uncertainty and likely high cost of going through the registration process for a transgenic strain. So let's go to the biotech angle, but there's also another major angle about the ice nucleation that they seem to be very important, not only in plant frost damage, but also in the global scheme in terms of being involved in, in rain and snow formation, and the global precipitation cycle. So these bacteria live almost exclusively on leaves. I'll show you in a little bit that the bacteria leave leaves in high numbers. They can make their way up into clouds. The clouds we see are high up, they're cold, they're much below zero Celsius, and their drops in clouds do not coalesce to form rain unless there's something to make large particles. And if ice forms in the clouds, such as when one of these ice forming bacteria were to bump into one of the droplets of water, it would cause ice to form. By different processes, this makes larger crystals of ice that form in the clouds, and eventually it gets so large that it can't be maintained as a basically a fog in the sky, and it'll fall out of the cloud. If it's warm on the way down, it melts and we call it rain. If it's cold on the way down, it falls as snow. But this process is very central to the precipitation. Without something that causes ice formation in the clouds, we do not get precipitation. So they are one of several different things which can cause this ice formation. And because they're so efficient at catalyzing ice at warm temperature, it's thought that they're particularly important in this process. Now, this seems to then be uh, worrisome in that humans are really changing the surface of the Earth. And I'm going to come back a couple of different ways to show you how we're doing that. But there's been long been a worry about, the, for example, the Sahel region of northern Africa. It's, a, it's becoming more and more desert-like. It used to be more green, but it was overgrazed with goats and other human impacts. So it's now kind of a denuded desert. And it's getting drier and drier and drier. And there's worry that, in fact, that has been basically human caused because the removal of the vegetation also would have removed these bacteria that might otherwise have moved into the clouds to cause precipitation. So it might be a terrible negative feedback where 
the, the vegetation changes have made it more of a desert. Now I've always kind of wondered about whether we're not doing that also in a different scale, other parts of the world, like in the Midwest. The US Midwest used to look very much like this, a big vast plain of, of desert plant, excuse me, of prairie plants like grasses and, and other herbs. In the spring and early summer, it would look like this. Now it looks like this because it's all been plowed up to plant corn and soybeans and other crops. So there's much of this large area of the earth, which used to have abundant sources of presumably ice nucleating bacteria that no longer has it until well late into the summer. So could we be changing precipitation even in the US as well? I'm gonna skip over a couple of things here. So one of the, uh, the, the processes that are involved in colonization of uh, bacteria on leaves is, is quite interesting. They seem to be able to change the nature of the leaf surface on which they live. Some produce plant hormones that cause the plant to convert some of the sucrose that would otherwise leak onto the surface of the leaf uh, that would support the bacteria into, into uh, growing um, instead the monosaccharide fructose. But many of the bacteria on leaves also produce uh, surfactants. These are detergent-like molecules that are produced by bacteria. Like all detergents, they would have a water liking area and a water heating area. And this kind of amphipathic nature to these surfactants then allow them to not only spread water drops onto a leaf surface. Remember, most leaves have a fairly waxy surface on which uh, the bacteria live, but also where water that would interact with the bacteria must spread. So what we've been interested in is how do the bacteria modify the leaf surface? And in this case, we studied that one particular surfactant, uh, uh, syringofactin produced by Pseudomonas syringae, one of the ice nucleating bacteria. And we find that it has two very important abilities to change the nature of the leaf surface. The leaf is usually probably a very stressful environment, but it has two ways to make it less stressful. In this case, it seems to basically dissolve that waxy cuticle on the leaf to allow nutrients that would be inside of the leaf to diffuse up onto the surface of the leaf where the bacteria are living. So in this case, we can peel a little bit of that cuticle off the leaf, put it on top of some tritiated water and watch the tritiated water diffuse from one side of the leaf to the other. And you can see that on an unmolested leaf, there's a slow movement of the tritium through the water uh, through the leaf. But if we add some of that surfactant to the leaf surface, then that rate of movement through the through the cuticle increases dramatically. Seem to make it permeable, to make it leaky for nutrients. And that, that would be good for the bacteria. Another thing that many of these surfactants can do is if they are themselves very hygroscopic, they bind water. And again, what the lack of water on a leaf is probably one of the most stressful environments that these bacteria can face. They are, all bacteria are essentially aquatic, but yet here they're living on leaves which are often very dry. In this case, by binding water, in this case, they can bind several uh, times their weight in water. These biosurfactants may be making little puddles, if you would, on the leaf surface. So this is our image then of, of the bacteria changing the leaf surface to make it much more habitable for itself. In this case, by producing this biosurfactant that makes a little 
a little droplet of water around where the bacterium would be. The rest of the leaf might be quite dry, but it would be happier because it would be in a little drop of water. Now, let me introduce one last little concept that before we move on to questions, but one of the questions, these are interesting bacteria, they pathogens and nucleated, but how do they get there? And what's the process by which plants uh, develop the microbial communities that they have? Now, we already developed that most plants like flowers and leaves are nearly sterile when they are emerging. But where do those microbes then come for those flowers? Well, in this case, if you can imagine this orchard where the flowers are pristine still uncolonized, but they're growing in, in this case, grass that was grown as a cover crop in this orchard. We know that the orchard grass had been there all year long in California. It had millions of bacteria on every little leaf blade. Is it the movement of these bacteria from the grass up onto the flowers that are in fact driving that process? Is it immigration from sources of apophytic bacteria that are important? So we were interested in that, and this kind of also gets to that question as to how, what is the process by which these bacteria might influence weather and so on? How, what is, how efficient are bacteria leaving surfaces of plants good into the air to move to other plants and move to the sky. Well, at Berkeley, we're on the uh, eastern edge of the San Francisco Bay. And from my lab, I look straight out to the Pacific Ocean through the Golden Gate Bridge. And the winds from the, come from the west almost all the time. So we were in an interesting position to look at how does the air get modified when it starts to interact with vegetation. So we went down to the edge of San Francisco Bay and we started collecting air after it had passed over the water. It hadn't seen a plant since it had left Asia. And so we collected some what we'll call upstream air, air that had never seen plants in a long time. And also some 30 meters, about 100 feet or so into vegetation that was growing uh, in the edge of the, of the bay. And again, we would have vacuum pumps then that would, that would uh, collect that air. And we could then quantify how many bacteria that we were impacting on filters that we filtered that air out. We saw what I found just a dramatic phenomenon, that the numbers of bacteria in the upwind air were much, much lower than that of the downwind air. It was about six times more bacteria had been found in the air after it had passed over only 100 feet of vegetation. And then we could also examine what was the composition of those bacteria by examining the DNA of those bacteria. And from the sequence of those uh, isolated DNA, we could, uh, we could align those up with different types of bacteria that would be found. And we found that they, in fact, the upwind air had a very different composition of bacteria than the downwind air. But more importantly, the, the downwind air, the species of bacteria that we found there looked very much like the same species that we got isolated off the plants. In this case, like Pantoia, very common plant colonizing bacteria. So it really looks like these plants are a major source of bacteria. That, uh, that, the, that the air looks a lot like the microbial communities on the plant itself. So it really does seem to support that idea that there is a lot of immigration and emigration that's going on. The, the immigrants from one plant would now immigrate to another plant and be the colonists there. But this is the last point I wanna make then is that 
Humans, by changing the land use of the world, some 40% of the land surface of the globe is now under human control from either grazing and agriculture, that we're greatly changing the way in which these processes are happening. So that if you were a small developing leaf in a more diverse uh, agricultural setting like here, you could imagine there could be many other nearby plants where there might be a good source of these bacteria that were making a cloud of bacteria that could move around and colonize other plants. Now, most of the world looks very much like this. We have these giant fields of corn and soybean where you have these little seedlings coming up and they could be you know, a mile to the nearest green plant that wasn't another little corn seedling. Remember the corn seedlings themselves are largely sterile despite the fact that they come from the soil. Soil isn't a good source. It has to come probably from another green plant. So we're really interested then in, in how can this really influence how plants are normally getting colonized. And so again, there's, there's basically the colonization of plants seem to have it at different scales. We have this large scale phenomenon where we get these clouds of bacteria that surround plants in the real world. And they are now the, the uh, immigrants from one plant are now the immigrants to another. That they're sharing microbes from one to the other. And that's necessary to get the right organisms on the right plant. Once they get to the plant, then everything happens at a very small scale where they start to modify the plant surface by making plant hormones that change the sugars and that make surfactants that cause the plant to start feeding them nutrients because it's more leaky and so on. But again, back to the bigger world then, we think that this is very important in how we think about growing plants. Before we really have this appreciation for the importance of these microorganisms and causing frost damage and the processes by which they got to the plants, that there wasn't an appreciation of how we were going, growing plants that could have a big effect on the microbiology of the system as a whole. So our, our work has really been interested in how do growers grow plants? So in this case, grapes are a major crop in, in California. Frost is a major issue in California because grapes start emerging here oh, in the middle of March where frost can quite be common in Northern California. We've been able to show then that by changing the amount of vegetation around these grapes as they were emerging, we can have a huge effect on the microbiology of these newly developing leaves and, and flowers that are subject to freezing. Compared to an area over on the right where we see the presence of various grasses and other cover crops that we're allowed to grow. It's good for the soil and so on, but it's not so good in terms of supporting the growth of these ice nucleating bacteria. So remember that orchard with the bacteria moving up onto the flowers. We think very similar things are happening here where this nearby vegetation on these grapes are changing the microbiology to one where they are gonna freeze at a much warmer temperature. And over here on the right, where there wasn't so much vegetation that would be sources of these nucleators, the plants are going to be less colonized and less likely to freeze. So it does leave growers with kind of a terrible question. Should they help maintain soil fertility and prevent erosion by having cover crops, or should they allow their plants to keep freezing? So it's something that we're still trying to work out and perhaps find the best plants that could be used as cover crops that might allow the soil fertility, but not be good sources 
the mice nucleating bacteria. And some of you may be aware there's a, a big push these days, certainly among agricultural uh, biotechnology companies, is to use inoculants on plants, especially seed inoculants, but some are also spraying them onto foliage to improve plant growth. But we think that there's actually quite a lot of support for this kind of a concept for other reasons as well, in that, again, the way we are growing crops in these large monocultures, where for much of the life of the plant, they're going to be what we would consider under colonized. There aren't other sources of microorganisms nearby. Those plants don't have a robust community of non-pathogenic bacteria that might otherwise have developed. And because of that, should pathogen be among the first things that would make their way to these plants, they're going to grow without um, any kind of competition. So we think that these kind of monocultures are going to make plants intrinsically more susceptible to invasion by plant pathogens. And for that reason, there's going to be a lot of potential for uh, agricultural probiotics, if you would, inoculants of one sort, to maybe bring back some of that biological diversity that otherwise was provided by the other plants nearby. So again, I think it fits well into you know, what is already being developed, and I think a keener eye on finding, finding the best organisms that are not only going to perhaps help plants grow more quickly, but also in this case to make them a little bit more disease resistant. So again, thanks for the invitation to speak today. I'll just leave a picture of my group on some of our fun outings over the last few years. But uh, it's been a fun area to work in biotechnology. I'll add, though, that our earliest efforts in agricultural biotechnology and our genetic and generic techniques were somewhat on the more painful side because of our, our need to kind of break the ground for others that have followed since in terms of getting through some of the regulatory processes. And unfortunately, we still haven't turned over all of the skeptics for this technology. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. That was really interesting. Um, very interesting. I love the uh, historical perspective. Um, we have a question in the chat from Peter Ballant-Curdy. Uh, I know, I think that came in early. Do you still want um, that to be addressed, Peter? Uh, sure. Oh, do you want to ask it yourself? <laughs> oh, sure. Yes. Uh, um, thanks for your talk, Dr. Lindau. Um, I was Curious why ice nucleation might have evolved in the first place. Is it is it advantageous to the bacteria to nucleate ice? That's a very good question, and it's very hard to answer. There's really two common models as to why they nucleate ice. Uh, one is basically related to that scheme that I showed about their role in precipitation. It's thought that this is part of a successful long-distance transport mechanism. So they leave the plants as we showed make their way up into clouds and find their way into a droplet that might eventually come back as rain. That would be a very efficient way for them to get out of the clouds and back to earth onto a plant where they probably want to live. And as such, then uh, they would otherwise have died without that ability to leave the atmosphere. It's really hard to prove, but that's to me the most popular, likely one. A second model is a little more complicated in that uh, I simplified the story of freezing injury a bit because there are really two different types of plants. There are frost-sensitive plants like most agricultural crops, like the tomatoes and potatoes that we showed, 
that cannot tolerate ice formation at all. And if ice forms, it's damaging. But many plants in the world, like conifer needles and the grass in your lawn, they have ability to change their physiology to be able to tolerate ice formation. They actually allow ice to form and ice forms first between the plant cells, making crystals between the plant cells and the water inside of the cells go out from ice outside. And it's an equilibrium process when it gets warm then white water goes back into plant cells. This all works fine as long as it's a slow formation of ice that has to kind of occur in almost equilibrium. And by allowing ice formation to occur at a warm temperature by the bacteria, they uh, allow the plants to more likely survive that process. They do not want to supercool and freeze rapidly. So they might have evolved on our native plants that are otherwise more tolerant of freezing and allowed them to better tolerate freezing. And there's a bit of data from that where we've made some transgenic plants that made ice nuclei that seem to support that that idea is also true. But either one is kind of hard to prove because it's kind of a long, big scale issue. Hope that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, Eli, uh, you have a question? Uh, yes, and um, but before I go on, Fred <laughs> asked a question about if there's naturally occurring ice minus pseudomonas, why not just use those? And um, you can confirm, I think there are and they have been commercialized. Is that right? Not very common and strange, no, unfortunately. But even though they do work somewhat better as a competitor, the, uh, the there, there remains huge uh, uncertainty about the regulatory process for these types of recombinant microbes. Recombinant plants have been enough going through the system that there's a reasonably streamlined, although certainly not inexpensive process by which they get deregulated. But there's been few of any recombinant microorganisms uh, deregulated for any process. And a big part was a not only the cost of this, but the other one was really the uncertainty because there hadn't been any uh, that had made it through the pipeline with EPA in this case, there was a huge uncertainty as to what was going to be required. And the EPA was still scrambling to know what they would want to see for the approval for these kind of organisms. And so the, mission, the combination of uncertainty and potential high cost, they said it was too risky to be starting down that process. So. There were a naturally occurring strain of Pseudomonas fluorescens that's been used. That was that strain A506 that I pointed out that was actually included in our trial. That one has been developed. It is commercialized. It is used not only for frost control, but also for disease control. It's sold commercially as blight ban A506. It's used to, in the biological control of fire blight disease, which we showed it we could also compete nicely against the pathogen. Of, of, of fire blight or any amylavra, but it's also marketed and it's got a label of use for frost control. So that that's I think probably what you're referring to. So um, my own question um, is, so uh, I think uh, an objection that we often get to uh, transgenics is that the system we're applying them to is complex, um, like ecologically complex. So we, uh, a, they say you, you can't uh, evaluate the risks ever, um, and B, you, the scientists, are, are oversimplifying in saying you can do this. Um, 
think you expressed a, a pretty complicated perspective on plant microbial ecology. Um, my question is, in your early interactions, um, how deep did you go into those discussions about complexity and, and what was the outcome? Like when you dug into it with people, were they, uh, did it change minds or, uh, or not? Or, uh, yeah. Well, you know, yes, we, we had to do a, not a, lot, a lot of different kind of studies to try to uh, provide some indication as to what would be the likely fate of our organism after it was released. We had used some surrogate organisms, some naturally occurring Pseudomonas strains to show their dispersal potential, their potential to grow on soil and water sources and so on. But we, as part of our experimental use permit for the EPA, which was a quite a hefty document, we tried to do as much as we could to kind of show the natural biology of these organisms. And more importantly, what we, we did was some side-by-side -side comparisons in the laboratory to show that there were was no observable change in behavior of the ice minus mutant compared to the wild type strain. But in terms of did that change any minds and hearts? And uh, it's uh, I think it's always been a polarized environment in terms of ag biotech, just like it is now for almost any other issue we can talk about. And like vaccine uh, hesitancy is another sort of thing where there's a lot of evidence that you know, has been accumulated that shows that there's probably no reason you shouldn't have a, a uh, vaccine, but yet there are a lot of people that seem to reject the arguments that are made against why you should. So it, I think we'll always be in that kind of a situation. And uh, why there's polarization is more beyond me. Uh, again, I think as a, as a reasonable person looking at, this, at the data, most people were in fact, uh, uh, satisfied. The polls that were taken in the counties that we did our experiments were most people were fairly fine with our experiment going forward. It was a relatively small but vocal minority that were not, and they had the ability to uh, mount quite a lot of considerable visibility to an issue, even though it was a relatively small number of people who were anti in this particular case. Um, if I could, one quick follow-up. Um, do you, in terms of your personal interaction, um, do you think it changed people's view of you going through, going into these details about complexity, like when you had one-to-one -one conversations? You know, it's a good question. I think, I'm not sure how many people I changed their minds for. Like I say, most people seemed to be rather um, willing to learn about the microbiology and they thought, oh, that's for kind of a cool idea. I never knew this about bacteria and you seem to know quite a bit about what's going on. I, I'd like to know what's gonna happen. Uh, my neighbor is a farmer and he's complained a lot about frost damage and you know, I'm, I'm really optimistic that you're gonna have something that's gonna be beneficial. The relatively small number of people at the time that were quite concerned I was not convinced that I ever did change any minds. Just like my brother, who's a vaccine hesitant, I haven't been able to change his mind either. And he's, a, I thought, a very, a very reasonable guy otherwise, but for some reason, he decided he's not going to do it. Yeah, I think we can all relate to that. <laughs> um, 
Okay, David Livingston has a question about soil freezing. Uh, David, can you unmute yourself and um, ask a little more detail, please? Click unmute there. No, wait. Yeah, we did hear you before. Looks like you're muted. Okay, I will unmute myself. How about that? We can hear you now. Thank you. Okay, good. Sorry about that. Um, thank you for that talk. It was great. Um, I had a question. I know you talked a lot about uh, bacteria on um, leaves, but <clears throat> we've been doing some work with, I, I think you remember Michael Wisniewski from West Virginia. Uh, he and I have been doing a lot of stuff with um, um, wheat uh, out in the field and in, using infrared cameras. And we find that the soil freezes um, pretty uh, pretty soon below freezing. I mean, it's kind of tricky because it looks like the soil's freezing in patches, which, um, I mean, there's there's probably some reasons for that. The, the moisture in the soil differs from, you know, location to location. I mean, we're talking about micro patches, you know, a couple inches, and then, and then uh, you know, an, an hour or so later, it, another patch will freeze. But um, I was curious if you've looked at the soil, why that would be happening in the soil. Um, can you talk about that a bit? Good point. Yeah, I know Michael well. We did some work on, on the infrared imaging early on as well. Right. Um, there's a couple of reasons. One is there are nucleators that do occur in the soil, depending on the nature of your soil and how you are collecting it. There's also a large migration of microbes from the leaves down onto the soil surface. So the soil surface would actually be quite enriched with nucleators had there been any kind of vegetation nearby. But the other thing is also probably the propagation of ice. Now, if you have a moist soil, you would only need one nucleant to be present even in one of your little patches, if you would, and the ice will then propagate. Uh, I didn't, one of the pictures I showed actually showed that actually happening on leaves. Mm -hmm. So partly it is how many nuclei you have need to be visualizing the ice patches that you're observing. My guess is that it is probably a rare nucleant that is found in the upper part of the soil. I don't know, you didn't mention the nucleation temperature, how cold it had to get, but it's quite possible that there could be relatively rare, but active ice nuclei that would be on the soil surface that could have caused that kind of phenomenon. So, so you mean like a non-bacterial nucleant? It's unlikely that it's non-bacterial. Uh, the, the activity of any kind of inorganic materials is usually much, much, much less active. Right. They're usually active not till minus 10 or colder. Yeah. So it's more likely to be a bacterial nucleant. There are a couple of species of soil bacteria that do catalyze ice. Uh, they're not particularly abundant, but again, you don't need very many if you only need to nucleate a few particular patches as you're suggesting. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Okay, and I think next we have uh, Ramon. Would you like to unmute yourself? Hi. Um, thanks for that presentation. It was very interesting. Uh, I have a different question, and, and uh, I worked in California for several years in vineyards uh, and with cover crops. 
so um, I'm wondering, and I, I guess it's a good problem to have, that now we have uh, people are aware of different ecological dynamics within the system, but now we're going to start stepping into each other's uh, area of work, right? So how do we resolve that that trade-off? How do you envision uh, that that this has to be, it'll have to be addressed from different perspectives? Yeah. Yeah, we're hoping that it doesn't always have to be a trade-off. And I didn't really get into a lot of the other work we're doing on this. We Plant species differ dramatically in how many isonucleating bacteria in this example are harbored on them. And so we've done a lot of work to look at potential cover crop species that would be able to, you know, fix, you know, carbon soil and so on, but would not be good sources of isonucleating bacteria. And so we've identified certain legumes, for example, that are would make a fine cover crop species compared to say grass that uh, would be, you know, having those benefits for, you know, beneficial insects and you name it, that would not have had the corresponding detriment in terms of bad microbiology, if you would. So that's been kind of our approach. And we've been studying that in both some orchard crops, but also in some uh, vine crops like uh, grapes to see, you know, are there suitable, uh, optimized cover crops, if you would, that would not, you know, would have benefits, but not so many detriments. That That's what we're hoping, that we can find a sweet spot. Thank you. Okay, um, Fred, uh, there's been, would you like to unmute yourself? Um, there's been some discussion in the chat that I think might be good to bring to uh, everyone. Um, Fred has more questions about the um, ice minus natural lines? Yeah, so so a couple of things. Uh, one is, you know, it looked like in your test you had an, a natural isolate that also worked quite well. And, you know, the initial question was, why go to all this trouble of engineering a strain when they occurred naturally? Uh, but all, and also the follow-up to that is, you know, were they better, but also, you know, what was the, how complicated was it to develop them? Well, basically that the reason to do this study was to ask that very question, which was, could, is there, the, what is the best way to control competition? Are ice minus bacteria best controlled by something that's ecologically identical or could some other close relative like Pseudomonas fluorescens A506 do the job? And there was no way to test that until you did the test. And so the answer was, in fact, that yeah, there is the ice minus mutants. They were at the bottom of the list, as you might remember. They were a bit better, but probably not enough that we needed to spend millions of dollars to get them registered. And um, the, the experimental design was actually even a little more complicated than I mentioned, because we, um, under field conditions, which are very difficult to reproduce exactly in the laboratory or the greenhouse, we actually had inoculated the plants with the exact parental strain to these ice minus mutants. And we could test how good did a particular ice minus mutant, like strain SIT7 is a ice plus strain. We made a mutant of it that was ice minus, put it on the plant, and then also inoculated it with its parental strain and could measure how well was the parental strain suppressed. And we compared that level of suppression against 
how many of these other miscellaneous ice-nucleating bacteria were being suppressed by that same strain to get at how good of a direct competitor was a strain and how and was that level of competitive exclusion related to its ecological similarity as measured by a genetic similarity. So that was at the basis of our experimental design. And the answer was, yes, many close relatives are probably close enough ecologically that they are probably nearly as effective as a strain that would be identical in terms of a competitive excluder. So hopefully that makes a little sense. So yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, but it also gives me that kind of sense of when people were comparing, is there a risk to um, this new genetic technology? It's sort of a risk and benefit thing. So if the benefit is without this, you're going to have frost. With it, you won't have frost. Or with it, you won't have frost. Without it, you'll have to use a different strain. Those are different questions to ask. And I wonder if that was part of the debate or not. Unfortunately, there was a lot of misperception about what this experiment was all about. Most thought, and a lot of the press call it a directed production of a ice minus frost control agent. We knew we could always control frost with a naturally occurring strain, and there wasn't an absolute need to make a recombinant strain. What we needed to know was a scientific answer to, well, were we uh, hurting ourselves in terms of potential benefit that we could bring to society? by knowing how best to control frost. Yeah. So yes, it was kind of developed, it was posed as a commercial product, if you would, that was gonna save the world from frost. We could almost save it already, but we wanted to know if we were you know, not quite there yet. Right, thanks for that answer. Okay, uh, Dylan, you have a question. Yes, hi, so this is, uh, Somewhat following up on Ramon's question, and I thought, uh, you know, fits with what uh, Dr. Gould was saying about cost and benefits. So it seems like depending on the environment, um, you might have different sort of cost benefit uh, analysis of, you know, the value of ice nucleating bacteria. So you're, you use the example of the Sahel. So it seems like in warm, dry regions where, you know, you don't have, where you're more limited by precipitation than by frost, you would want more ice nucleating bacteria. In colder, wetter areas, you would probably want less because you're more at risk from frost than from, you know, uh, from drought. So does this, should this be considered when, uh, you know, when someone's deciding whether or not to use cover crops and if there are, you know, I, I am curious, you know, this, this might not have a, there might not be space, but I'm, I am curious about your research into different types of cover crops that have different, you know, microbiomes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, um, as it turns out, almost all of our agricultural crops uh, tend to be quite intolerant of ice formation. So there, there are not too many cultivated crops. <laughs> for whatever reason, humans like to eat things that are frost sensitive for the most part. Uh, so almost all of the agricultural crops that are out there, citrus and apples and you name it, they have 
at, at the time in the springtime, at least, where they're subject to freezing, or in the wintertime, in the case of citrus when they're in the field, they are all potentially damaged by ice formation. It's really more of our natural, uh, our, our, our indigenous plants, which are not edible, that have the, are the ones that have evolved how to tolerate ice formation. So we don't eat grass, but they tend to be this kind of species that are tolerant of ice. Whether there's a connection between that ability and frost sensitivity, I don't know if there is or not. But so basically, there I'm trying to think of any important agricultural crop where it would actually be deleterious to have reduced the numbers of ice nucleating bacteria. If I'm getting your drift in terms of uh, making them potentially more susceptible to the damage. Like I say, it turns out that most of these crops that we're worried about are crops that are now grown, that are sensitive, that are grown in areas where they otherwise would not back up. We're bringing frost sensitive plants from warm areas and growing them in our more uh, colder areas throughout the world in temperate zones where they are subject to freezing. So beans, for example, are normally found in Latin America where freezing doesn't happen very often. We grow them in uh, the areas where <coughs> freezing is now likely to happen. There's a need to avoid nucleation. Did I get at your answer? Yeah, I think so. I was just, uh, the other thing I was wondering about with that was, you know, if there might be certain regions where the chance of, you know, temperatures falling that low or so low that you, uh, you know, don't, you know, you don't have really risk of frost, even if the plants are frost sensitive. But I, I was just curious about that. Well, there are some people, you know, that they're lucky enough to be growing in, you know, living in areas where frost is not a potential hazard. Most people think of California as a sunny and warm place, and it is sunny and warm 99% of the time. But Large areas of the agricultural regions of California do subject to frost. In fact, tonight it's supposed to get quite cold in the Central Valley. Almonds are in full bloom right now, and it's very likely that you're going to read about major damage to almond flowers in the newspaper in the coming weeks. So again, it's not a common problem, but it, it's a common enough problem that it's worth billions of dollars around the world. Wheat and other things have, even though wheat as a whole is very tolerant of freezing in the wintertime, when it starts to flower in the springtime, it is very subject to freezing. The flowering part of the wheat is damaged by uh, freezing. And so some of the worst damage actually happens to plants that are potentially cold tolerant, but are not cold tolerant all the time and are therefore subject to freezing damage. That's very interesting. Thank you. Okay, um, it's now one o'clock, so we need to um, thank uh, Dr. Lindell for coming uh, and giving such a great uh, talk and a good discussion. Um, so if everyone can help me thank him by, you know, however you want to do it virtually. <laughs> thank you.